You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation. I am your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, President of the American Retina Foundation, and joining me today is Dr. Suber Wong, who is Professor of Ophthalmology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. He is Vice Chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology and the Director of the Vitreal Retinal Diseases and Surgery at the University Hospital's Case Medical Center. Today we are discussing diabetic retinopathy. From an ophthalmologic standpoint, it is a disease that basically, in a way, adds insult to injury because it affects vision, the one sense that diabetics need to determine the medication that they receive. We'll start the discussion, Suber. If you can talk to us first about how diabetic retinopathy affects vision. Hello, Roy. Thanks for having me today. Diabetes is a very serious disease, and the sobering statistics are that it's the number one cause of blindness in the United States of working-age Americans. It's also the number one cause of kidney failure, renal dialysis, transplantation, and the leading cause of non-traumatic amputation in this country. And the various mechanisms by which diabetes affects the body also affect the eye. There are both macrovascular, those affecting the large vessels, such as atherosclerosis, coronary arteries, and peripheral vascular disease. But we like to focus more on the microvascular complications, the retinopathy, nephropathy, and neuropathy. There are several mechanisms by which diabetes affects the eye. The two main outcomes and clinical signs that we look for are macular edema and retinal neovascularization. Macular edema is caused by leakage and dysfunction of the small capillaries as they're being affected by diabetes and result in leakage or seepage of fluid into the retina, causing swelling, particularly of an area we call the macula, which is the part of the retina most needed for central vision. Retinal neovascularization is a larger form of the disease, a more advanced form where abnormal blood vessels grow and this is true angiogenesis, where these abnormal vessels can grow, bleed, or even cause retinal detachment. And how does this actually affect what the patient can see? Roy, that's a good question. Patient's symptoms are largely governed by what is going on in their central retina, the area we call the macula. If there's leakage in this area, they may experience a blurring of the central vision or a blank spot corresponding to the area of swelling. And what can we do to improve this situation? There's a lot of research that's been done in the country, and these studies have started even in the 1970s. And in the last several decades, we have a number of new approaches that we've taken towards treatment of uh, diabetes and diabetic retinopathy. For the treatment of macular edema, laser photocoagulation, or the use of the laser, an outpatient procedure done in the office, has been demonstrated to be useful and reduces the risk of severe vision loss by 50% versus those people not treated. This uh, relatively straightforward procedure involves placing a small contact lens on the person's eye to allow us to look into the eye and to photocoagulate areas of disease retina and the abnormal leaking blood vessels. Other approaches have focused on a medical therapy for uh, macular edema. These have proved somewhat disappointing, but we have learned that intensive control of blood sugar and particularly awareness of keeping the hemoglobin A1C, the level of glycosylated hemoglobin low, 
has been shown to retard the primary and secondary progression of both retinopathy, nephropathy, as well as neuropathy. In other words, if we keep our blood sugars low, this will make it less likely that retinopathy will appear, will delay its onset, and if retinopathy is present, it will delay the progression of that retinopathy. Suber, I do know that proliferative retinopathy has other issues in its effect on vision. Could you discuss that with us? Sure, Roy. Proliferative diabetic retinopathy is characterized by the abnormal growth of blood vessels in the eye. Usually they grow on the retinal surface or on the optic nerve, but can, in very severe cases, migrate to the front of the eye, and particularly iris neovascularization or angle neovascularization can lead to a particularly painful kind of glaucoma called neovascular glaucoma. The presence of abnormal vessels is a sequelae of long-standing ischemia and long-standing diabetic damage. When these conditions exist, abnormal growth factors are elaborated, particularly one of interest is called vascular endothelial growth factor. And as these growth factor levels increase, neovascular vessels can grow. When they grow, these vessels are subject to bleeding, causing the eye to fill with blood, a vitreous hemorrhage or they may form scar tissue and pull on the retina, causing a traction retinal detachment or a true tear of the retina, a regmatogenous retinal detachment. Each of these conditions can also be treated with laser or sometimes with surgery. I'm going to take just a quick break here for those who are just tuning in. You are listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I am speaking with Dr. Suber Wong, and we are discussing diabetic retinopathy. Suber, I understand that there are some new pharmacologic treatments that may be beneficial for both nonproliferative diabetic retinopathy and proliferative retinopathy. That's right. These new agents all work to suppress the amount of leakage from these damaged vessels. One of them, called Avastin, and another one called Lucentis, are both work at suppressing vascular endothelial growth factor activity. In doing so, the amount of leakage is reduced. It also has a positive effect as an anti-angiogenic drug. In other words, it causes the stabilization and partial regression of active neovascularization. These growth factors are very, very strong, and blocking the effect of growth factors is useful. Pound for pound, VEGF is a very, very potent molecule. As an example, histamine is a molecule that gets blocked usefully in cases of allergic disease. When you have allergic disease, histamine is released, and it causes swelling and leakage. The vascular endothelial growth factor molecule is 50,000 times, 50,000 times more potent than histamine. So blocking this agent has a positive effect on macular edema. The use of these agents has primarily been in the condition called age-related macular degeneration. Results for use of these medications in diabetic retinopathy are not yet completely clear and have not been approved by the FDA at this time. So at this point, it is a promising treatment, and in combination with more standard treatments such as laser photocoagulation, there is hope that some of these disease processes in the eye can be controlled for a much longer period of time. Absolutely. I think we stand on the brink of a very, very exciting time in pharmacotherapy and perhaps even new fields of study such as immunotherapy to better modulate the process. For those who are just tuning in, 
You are listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I am speaking with Dr. Subra Wong, and we are discussing diabetic retinopathy. There have been some articles using steroids for reduction of macular edema. Can you comment on this? Uh, I'm glad you raised that point. The use of steroids has been prevalent for a number of years, and we know that steroids are useful in reducing the amount of retinal swelling and macular leakage in a number of different conditions, such as cystoid macular edema. However, the use of steroids for diabetic macular edema, particularly those cases which are very severe and advanced, are perhaps less promising than we would hope. We feel that there is some effect, and some clinicians have used this with great success, but the word is still out, and we are currently under uh, performing studies to further delineate whether the use of intravitreal steroids, that is direct injection of this medication into the center of the eye, is as beneficial as standard and more conventional therapies, such as focal laser photocoagulation. Suber, as an ophthalmologist and a retina specialist, how do you recognize diabetic retinal changes? Well, there are a number of clues even as the patient enters the office and a complete history is taken as part of our comprehensive examination. Certainly, we know that there are other organ systems that can be involved. So if a patient has beginning stages or advanced kidney disease or peripheral vascular disease, With a history of diabetes, I think we are already suspicious. Ophthalmoscopically, there are a number of findings that are important components of diabetic eye disease. Most of those exist in the retina. The the early findings of diabetic retinopathy include retinal hemorrhages, the presence of microaneurysms, and if there's leakage, the presence of retinal exudates. As the disease progresses, signs of ischemia, such as cotton wool spots, and macular ischemia, often seen on ancillary testing, become more pronounced and are early signs and risk factors for developing the last form of of diabetes or a later form of diabetes called proliferative diabetic retinopathy. The presence of abnormal new blood vessels on the optic nerve or elsewhere in the retina are commonly seen in advanced disease. For those who are just tuning in, You are listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I am speaking with Dr. Subra Wong, and we are discussing diabetic retinopathy. As a non-ophthalmologist physician, what should one do when a patient complains of visual problems or when eye changes are seen on an exam? These are two critical symptoms, and when patients develop these new symptoms, an eye examination is critically important. I gave a keynote address to the American Academy of Family Physicians, and we stressed the importance of a team approach in taking care of the patient. Vision loss is a problem for all of us, primary care physician and specialist alike. I think we play an important role encouraging our patients to modulate their overall health and their risk factors for developing visual loss. But when they develop symptoms, such as the ones you mentioned, blurred vision or actual visual loss, that they should be referred for prompt attention by an ophthalmologist. Do you think that a general ophthalmologist versus a retina specialist are equally trained and competent to treat 
the changes involved with diabetic retinopathy? Most ophthalmologists who have trained in the last several years to decades are well aware of the findings of diabetes. Many general ophthalmologists do feel comfortable treating diabetic retinopathy, and indeed they are trained to do so during their residency. I think general ophthalmologists play an important role in screening for a disease, and yet there are many cases of more advanced disease that a retina specialist has advanced diagnostic and therapeutic equipment and may be able to more appropriately assist. Thank you, Suber. I'm going to close. This is Dr. Roy Levitt with the American Retina Foundation that has been speaking with Dr. Suber Wong about diabetic retinopathy. I'd like to thank you all for listening to The Revealing Retina presented by the American Retina Foundation. For more information, visit us online at AmericanRetina.org. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and new podcast features will allow you access to our entire program library. Again, thank you for listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. 